0: Hello and welcome to Meet Him, the newest addition to Virtual Inforum. My name is Terry Barclay, and I'm president and CEO of Inforum, a nonprofit whose work includes highlighting and supporting diversity in business leadership. The Meet Him podcast series introduces listeners to male leaders who share what they've learned about the value of diverse leadership in their companies and in their own leadership journeys. And I'm very excited that joining me today is Dr. Lee Meadows, Professor of Management at Walsh College, who is also an author, frequent public speaker, and a highly respected voice on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Welcome, Lee, and thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Terry, it is a pleasure to be here. Hello to all of you.
0: Well, let's um, uh, thank you so much, and let's just jump right in. What does being a male ally mean to you?
1: Well, essentially, is this, Darian? Let me just let me just create a backdrop here. Um, when someone is being an ally, that means that they, the individual or individuals with whom they're working, they don't see them from a competitive point of view. All right, the. Um, mm-hmm. The, the nature of organizations is such that, you know, we, the, the, the culture suggests that we all have to, we all have to figure out ways to get by on our individual merit, you know, that, you know, that being a factor, our performance and those kinds of things. So you, can, you, fat, you factor all those in. But one of the things that really gets talked about is the whole notion that within every organizational culture, there is an element of competition. Now, competition means that when I'm looking at who you are and what you're doing, I'm seeing you as someone who's a barrier or a potential barrier to something I'm trying to achieve. And so from that standpoint, you can't be an ally. I think when, when, you, when you start to talk about the notion of being a male, male ally, is that I'm not seeing the person with whom I'm aligned as a competitor, but as someone with whom I am a, a, you know, I'm, I'm attached to them in a potato sack race.
0: So, <laughs> <laughs> now, oh I so, like that that's a great image.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah so you know we're both trying to achieve the same thing and what what we recognize is that we we do that because we have a set of skills that when brought together allow both of us to achieve the same objective without taking away from what that individual is capable of doing or impeding their progress in, in the organization. And So specifically as a male ally to my, um, to my uh, female counterparts, I have, to, I have to start with and continue to maintain that I am not looking at that person as a competitor, but as someone who has a shared set of beliefs and goals and things that she is also trying to achieve so my ability to assist in that manner is, ba- is, is based on the fact that I've got a certain set of skills or knowledge or abilities that I make available to that ally in, in the event that, he, that she needs that. And it's, not, and it's not done with any kind of um, reciprocation in mind. It's the recognition that she's trying to achieve something. I'm trying to achieve something we're both in the, we're both in a similar race but we are essentially joined at the hip so once i once you kind of once you take out the notion that it's not a competitor it takes on a whole different point of view i
0: i also love sort of the implied humility in that approach that it's also not um a a sort of a top down relationship you know condescension you know like let me show you how that you know it's kind of it's 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 a collegial relationship well
1: you know and in in my mind that it keeps it less stressful that way Mm. you know I don't um, when I I look at my I guess it's okay to say female colleagues when I look at my female colleagues the only thing I'm assessing is, is how is she going about achieving her goals and if I can be helpful to that, I will. Now, I can still be an ally and still be someone who maybe doesn't lend any, any assistance at all. Now, my, um, my wife is always fond of saying that, well, if you, know, if you can't be the kind of person who can assist me, then at the very least, don't get in my way.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right? So, <laughs> um, so, again, if I'm not seen as someone who can be helpful, the most helpful thing I can do is to not get in that person's way.
0: So, so you've really kind of started answering the next question, which is, is what can male allies do on a day-to-day basis to encourage and facilitate diversity?
1: Well, here's, here's the thing. I think there's a, I think there's a certain self-awareness that, um, that all males have to experience when they're working inside the of when they're working inside the of an organization. And that is, the workforce has got got to be reflective of the demographics of the world going on around them. So from that standpoint, the whole day-to-day thing is when you are perceiving individuals, um, uh, perceiving women, they are are colleagues who have a set of skills and abilities that can also be helpful to you. So the day-to-day strategy has to always be around the use of language. the nature of the interaction, um, the recognition that when someone made the brilliant observation millions of years ago that men or women are different, that's true. (laughs) 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 And so because they are different, that doesn't mean that it's exclusive. It just means that the, the point of view as a male that I bring into the workplace is still limited because I don't don't understand or or can connect in certain ways to that female point of view that also gets brought into the workplace. But when those two points of view are allowed to both collaborate and facilitate around projects and interactions and things that are designed to make the organization better, it 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 can be a goldmine. So I think the day, for me, the day-to-day strategy that I think men need to think about is how am I perceiving this individual and what's my strategy for helping her get better at what she does or trying to achieve what she does that also allows me to do the same kind of thing.
0: Wow, I, I love... Uh, that's a different focus, I think, than how most people think about this and it's very profound. I can see where and I, where it also would be very effective um, in so many different ways. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, and let me add
1: this as, as part of that. You know you and I've been around long enough to, to know that um, in our experiences we've heard people along the way say well you know I don't see black I just see people. You know I don't see women I just see people. Well, that's not true, and it never has been true. Right. That woman that you're looking at is a woman, <laughs> right. and, and, be, and because she's a woman, um, that doesn't mean that you see her in some kind of, you know, some kind of disjointed or gray light. She has skills and abilities, and the recognition is that she is a woman who brings a unique point of view and the next, unique set of skills to the organization in such a way that. It increases the organization's ability to be productive and be and be profitable. Mm-hmm.
0: That's that is such a great point, point. Um, and you know it feels like it's an such an empowering point too, because people are being recognized and supported for their unique gifts uh, that you know we're not all the same, and so we're really. Allowing organizations through that process to really harness sort of that mosaic of skills and abilities and talents and viewpoints, which is we know from the research improves the bottom line at companies.
1: And see, and that's the issue that you know that you and I and others like us we face all the time. The knowledge about that is out there. The research has been done. In fact, you know, in in my profession, you, you read enough academic articles. Over the course of of a lifetime and you begin to realize they're all pretty much saying the same thing. You know, anything, for instance, anything we know about group dynamics from the 1980s, well, people talked about that in the 1940s. The issue has always been the application and the execution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if an organization decides that part of its culture will be the fact that we embrace, you know, we embrace the differences in terms of skills, gender, ability, and all that because it's reflective of, one, the social dynamic, and two, it gives us access to information that we normally wouldn't have, you know, if we didn't do that. Then, it, you know, then it becomes a little bit, it becomes a lot easier to manage. This thing doesn't have to be stressful as, um, as sometimes it gets made out to be.
0: Oh, yeah, I, yes, I, I love that. You know, and it kind of answers the question. If you went to a CEO and said, I I think about the EY Peterson Institute research that shows that diverse teams improve the bottom line by at least 6%, you know, I can't think of a CEO that I could go talk to and say, if I could get a better net revenue of six percent for you. Would you pay attention to that? You know, and it does. Be, it is about the execution yeah. because people have the the intellectual understanding of why this is beneficial, but but creating the kind of culture where you can actually harness it and put it into practice um, is different. And I love your approach that this doesn't have to be stressful. You know, that's really great. So, is there? One characteristic that you believe every leader should possess?
1: Oh yeah, I, uh, for me, it's, it's focus. I know that you know um, a lot of the literature and a lot of the books that I've read by the leaders. Everybody talks about uh, that it starts with vision, and I, I know it does. But you know, vision doesn't mean anything if you can't focus the people around the vision. And so, you know, as 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 you know, if, as we go through this particular COVID thing. Um, there are always distractions around a vision, you know. Things happen like this. I mean, just kind of can't It just kind of it, it came out of the blue. Theoretically, none of us saw it coming, and so here we are in a situation where we're operating out of social isolation. Well, that doesn't mean that the, that an organization gives up on its vision. It just means that now you have to, as a leader, you have to focus your resources and focus, focus everybody's intent, focus their resources, make sure they understand that irrespective of the distractions or in this case the fact that we've had to take a completely different approach to getting work done it we don't lose sight of what it is we're trying to accomplish we're trying to build cars so let's keep that as a focus you know we're trying to um keep our maintain the flow of our restaurants so keep that as a focus we you know we do curbside service um you know we want to maintain uh, an opportunity to Meet so that we can talk about issues that are going on around around the vision. Well, now Zoom meetings do that, so let's keep that as a focus. So when you know, so I so I tend to lean in the direction of, yeah, you I know, accept the fact that you that you have a vision because why would you lead if you didn't have one? But can you focus? Can you keep? Can you focus and can you keep the people around you focused so that that vision can be realized?
0: Right, right. I'm I'm curious. Does that lead to sort of our next question of is there one mistake that you witness leaders making more frequently than others?
1: Oh, con- consistent, <laughs> whether it's consulting, 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 coaching, it doesn't matter. There's one, there's a, well, actually, there's a series of consistent mistakes, but let's
0: <laughs> Oh, I'm worried I'm going to resemble some of these, but please go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, so let's just, uh, let's just talk about the one that seems to be a dominant one. And that is Underestimating the talents of the people around you. Um, uh, for one of, because one of the things that I have noticed, you know, you know, for whatever reason, micromanagers can advance in the organization just as quickly as as other kinds of managers. In fact, in some instances, they tend to advance a lot faster, which is disturbing. But in the process of doing that, one of the things that they that they never seem to take into account is the fact that By micromanaging, they continue to undermine the talents of the people who report to them, so much so that what begins to happen is people show less of their talents and more of their attitude and mood. So um, there there comes a point in time in leadership, and I think it needs to happen right at the beginning, where you, you go in with the recognition that my job is to achieve a certain level of productivity through this group. And the only way I can do that is to not limit what they do by my constant overseeing, but to find out what their capabilities are and support that as part of the process of, get, of trying to get us to that particular point. You know, you, you, you take ego and insecurity out of the equation. And if your people know that where you're coming from is one of, we're all trying, we're trying to accomplish this thing together. They get it. In fact, they get it a lot sooner, and they tend to be a lot more productive. So, if I could, you know, if I could have a forum, if you will, like inform, in which I could, you know, stand high atop a mountain and shout to every leader on the planet, that would be the thing I would say: Would you please stop undermining the talents of the people who report to you? They will deliver.
0: Wow, (laughs) that is really profound. Um, The link between micromanagement and people displaying their moods and their, I mean, that is, that's powerful stuff.
1: Um, You know, 400 400 years of being at working in an organization, (laughs) you start to figure out out a few things.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) point taken. So, um, uh, Lee, you, you have a reputation for really uh, being passionate about developing leaders, and what advice do you give someone who's going into a leadership position for the first time?
1: Um, my, my advice has always been to start with, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is you start with the premise that because you were you moved into a a leadership role for the first time, you weren't moved there because you know everything. You were moved there because you demonstrated some sliver of being able to get things done through people. Uh, I, it always starts with that premise. And so the things that you want to focus in is not the stuff that you know. In other words, you know how to tighten this bolt, how to do this report, or that kind of... You already know how to do that. And the people who you're going to be reporting, who report to you also know that. What you start with is I don't know, and what I don't know means is now I'm forced to find out and learn more about you as individuals and what your talents are, and how I best support that. All right, when the, the, the term leadership is can be so misleading because it suggests, you know, someone who's at the you know the head of the, of the pack, leading everyone down, leading everyone down the streets to so and so and so and so, and a lot of that visually is true the real role, role behind any leader is the support of the development to get things done and so that had, so going into any leadership role for the first time my advice has always been shift your focus from the thing that you already know how to do to that of the things you don't know how to do and one of the things you don't know how to do is how to lead and so here's here's your framework start with support Start with I don't know, and recognize that you, you know, that your job is to support and develop to achieve the outcomes that the organization wants. And you're you're not supposed to do it by yourself. When you lead, you're supposed to be getting it done through others.
0: It's interesting. You know, it's um, actually been a theme in these podcasts that one of the most profound um, leaps is from is going from being an individual contributor to a leadership role, and that it requires almost the biggest learning and mindset change that people have experienced in their careers. And these are people who've had amazing careers, but uh, many of them come back to that was sort of a defining moment when they, when they made that transition. So thank you for, for your advice about that.
1: Well, just, just understand if there's one thing that will, you talked about my, that hap, me having that as a passion, I do. And one of the things that would get me off the rails is when I hear story after story after story of an individual who was leaving work on Fridays, their boss said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going home. Good, because on Monday you're in charge of this unit. And then just kind of drop them in there and, and allow them to and say, sink or swim, figure it out.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I just,
1: I just hate to hear those kinds of stories, even though I know they still go on. Mm-hmm. They still go on. So... That, so those individuals that you've talked about who have somehow managed to come through that, if I was a guessing person, I would say I would guess that somewhere along the way they figured it out without much help. And then in doing so, realized that that wasn't a good move for me. So I want to make sure that it doesn't happen to someone else.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one final question. Yeah. Do you have a favorite quote that you'd, you'd like to share and why?
1: Oh yeah, I do, and I—I'll say the quote, and then I'll—and uh, I'll tell you why I like it. All right. I—I um, I, I heard this quote back in my undergraduate days at Michigan State, and at the time, didn't really know what it meant, but I know that I liked it. Um, it goes something along the line uh, uh, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, and mm. that's attributed to Edmund Burke. Although there's been some debate as well, to whether he really said it. Now, as a as a sophomore in Michigan State in a political science class, hearing that, um, it didn't resonate as much. It just stuck with me uh, over all these years. And what I've come to kind of take from that, or in terms of the why, in terms of why I embrace that, is that whether I'm working inside of an organization or outside of it, I recognize that human nature is a is a is a weird animal, and that there are elements of evil that can happen, sometimes unbeknownst, sometimes unintentional, um, but it does happen inside and outside organizations. And the only reason why it's allowed to perpetuate is that good people who are are around and observe that do nothing about it because they don't want to take that on as a challenge Mm. right? because it might impede their career, it might um, you know get, put them in what's known as the organizational penalty box or something like that rather than call it out and you know and, I, and, and I'll be honest there you know as a, as a young person in my career I'm sure that I, I saw a number of things that I didn't think were right but I just kind of let them go mm-hmm. because I was trying to you know try I'm just trying to stay out of trouble and trying to advance my career but you know some there's something happens I know for, young, for our younger listeners something happens when you hit that magic 4-0. <laughs> it's, it's almost like you just went from being uh, on Mercury to being on Pluto, because it's just, it's just, it's just a dynamic shift in how you look at life. And uh, it's somewhere in the 40s, that statement just started stepping out to me more and more. And I began to realize that, you know what? No, I'm not, I'm not just going to sit back and... What something happened to an individual in an organization or a group, or in an organization, I'm going to say something about it, whether it's informally or indirectly or directly. If I think it's wrong, and I don't, I wouldn't address it if it is. If it is, if I think it was wrong, I'm going to say something about it. And you know, and since that magic four transition, what I found is that more often than not, I, I it, it tends to help a situation get better. Than to make it get worse. Now there's been a couple of times when I shut off my mouth and yeah, it kind of it got me in trouble. But you know, the earth didn't you know the earth didn't unfold underneath me, and I didn't get hit by a bolt of lightning, and <laughs> um, you know, and a, and a house from Kansas didn't drop on me. So uh, <laughs> so you live through it and you and you keep going. So that I, I I'm carrying that I keep I carry that statement with me as, 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 everywhere I go. It's always somewhere in the back of my head.
0: So I can see that we're going to have to have you back to talk just about that um you know because I would I would love to 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 talk more with you. I think that when something magic happens when you when you hit the the five O mark where... Well, yeah, because, no, that's another
1: discussion because I've talked about that
0: too. <laughs> because one of, one of my favorite quotations is from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I'm not going to say it properly, but it's basically fight for the things you believe in, but do it in a way that allows others to come along with you on that. And I think that, I, you know... That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> you, you know, so I think it's the... Uh, way that you go about this, you you can you can begin that speaking up, and then you begin to get better or more nuanced or more effective in how you go about speaking up. But the the beginning to speak up is the important part, right? That's very great.
1: Really exactly. exactly. You know, you you'll figure out the words as you go. Yeah. All right. But the mere fact that you are saying something, you are speaking to something that's an obvious wrong. And I mean, think of you know, think of all the folks who, you know, prior to us, were advocating for diversity and advocating for, you know, inclusion. And you know, the, the number of times they would hit the arguments of, you know, is affirmative action is reverse discrimination it's preferential treatment it's all that is all that and more. And all they, in the essence of all that, all they were doing was advocating for having a more diverse and inclusive workforce so that we can continue to be competitive in the things that we do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, so folks talked about this stuff, you know, even prior to you and I kind of brainstorming on it. And we've been able to take the work that they, to take the work in their words and build on it in such a way that. You know, we're still talking about diversity and inclusion, um, but yeah, finding the right words and the the right way in which to say something Mm. to make your point, you know, that's that's, that's a skill and quality that you learn as you go along.
0: Mm. Dr. Lee Meadows, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's been an hour, Terry. Thank you for (laughs) asking.
0: That wraps up our podcast. Please come back to inforumMichigan.org for more opportunities to meet him and also meet her, a podcast series featuring women of accomplishment, sharing their experiences and insights on leadership. And while you're there, check out the other virtual Inforum components, including a growing library of video tips, virtual leadership development programming, and even a series of virtual events. Thank you.